0: Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for
1: European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu.
0: Hello and welcome to another edition of FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation of European Progressive Studies in Brussels. I'm Vasilis Dousas. I'm the Senior International Relations Policy Advisor at FEPS. And I'm very fortunate to welcome to today's episode Rosa Balfour, who's the director of Carnegie Europe. This episode will have a special focus on the EU's global role and engagement in light of the year that is coming to an end and in expectation of the year that is in front of us, which we all hope will be much safer, much better, and in many ways, much more boring. Rosa, welcome to the programme. Thank you, Vasilis. I should say, since this episode will come out right before Christmas, it's a pleasure to have you on um, because you will help us unpack what has been a profoundly important year for the world and of course for Europe. A year that has been filled, uh, I should say, with too many noteworthy events and developments. So let's perhaps start there. What do you think are the highlights and low points of 2020? And of course, even the fact that we are recording this while we're Probably both teleworking from home might give a slight hint as to what you think should be number one. But why don't you take us through your top four or five trends that uh, you believe shape the year we're leaving behind?
1: Thank you very much. Well, 2020 will be a year to, to be remembered. First and foremost, obviously, the coronavirus pandemic, which has opened up a whole new world. It has put under the magnifying glass uh, problems that we have in European societies and, of course, elsewhere in the world. At the same time, it, it has also produced opportunities to address some of those problems. So I think what we'll see, historians will tell the degree to which Europeans have managed to rise to the challenge. But I do feel that during 2020, we saw some opportunities being seized by European leadership, which had not been seized in the previous decade. So I think it has been a a year of change, a transformative year. Um, We'll need to see whether the decisions made in 2020 will be pursued over time in 2021 and beyond. Um, But it definitely has been a transformative Yeah. Let's just say a few things briefly about what the pandemic has put the spotlight on. I think the first is inequalities that exist throughout the European continent between countries and within countries. And the EU recovery plan is designed to address precisely that divergence, um, that divergence in terms of economic productivity in terms of economic health, the health of the economy. Other inequalities, however, socially, among different ethnicities, that is much more problematic. We've seen an extraordinary protest movements throughout Europe, inspired by Black Lives Matter in the United States. And that has really triggered a completely, well, a protest movement against inequality based on skin colour. The pandemic also has underlined these. We know that in certain countries, ethnic minorities have been victims in higher numbers of COVID-19. And this, on the one hand, it has brought to the fore stories of people and history that we didn't really know. History of slavery, colonialism, empire, and stories of individuals in our societies who are which have been hidden, stories that haven't been told that process is has started and it's just at the very beginning, so we need to see how that's going to move forward. Another trend that I think we need to highlight is the climate crisis, which of course existed before we we know that, but the coronavirus. And the fact that the virus comes from wild animals and that we've come, as humans, we've come too close into contact with that part of nature because we have been annihilating nature, because we have been destroying it. I think that gave a different feeling, sense of what the climate crisis is about. And therefore, the fact that the recovery plans of the EU, but also the US, have green at their centre, that is another transformative moment uh, that is to be pursued, of course. Um, But I think it just, again, it was the magnifying glass, understanding the the degree to which, as humans, we have been destroying our own nature, our own environment. And fourthly, uh, again, magnifying Rather that a glass rather than a new trend, the pandemic has put the spotlight again on the weaknesses of our democracies in several ways. The first of course, and this is again related to the recovery plan, the role of countries that have been giving up on their democratic structures deliberately so. I'm thinking of Poland and Hungary in particular, and how they've also been, they've been trying to block any attempt for the EU to monitor the state of democracy inside countries. So the rule of law procedure, which is tied to the recovery fund. But beyond the role of Hungary and Poland, actually, let me just highlight that I think this is one of the biggest challenges for Europe looking forward. And Europe is truly handicapped by the fact that it has non-democracies in it within its fold, and that these non democracies are holding to ransom the other member states. But let me also highlight this is not just about Hungary and Poland, where there are leaders which who are deliberately undermining democratic structures there. There are broader trends within Europe as a whole and elsewhere. I mean, we've seen democracy in the US also under the magnifying glass, and we've seen all the problems there. But um, in Europe, and I think there's some issues that came up about with the, in the context of the pandemic, which show that there are difficulties. For instance, the degree of coordination between states, the EU, national states, regions, and local authorities, which has been absolutely critical in managing the pandemic, and we have very different stories there. We've seen in Spain and in the UK um, that they've been. Quarrels between regions, local leaders and the centralised state, which does raise questions about the constitutional arrangements in these countries. We've seen similar quarrels also in Italy and in France. And I think if we want to look at democracy moving forward, Um, it will be important to look at those relationships between governance structures. There's plenty more that can be said about democracy, you know, transparency, access to information, uh, freedom of, of speech, freedom of the press. There's plenty of issues that need to be addressed. So that's another big trend that has been under the spotlight during the context of the pandemic.
0: But Rosa, many thanks. You certainly covered a lot and you talked about the many problems, the many weaknesses within the EU and across the continent, that the pandemic uh, shed such a strong spotlight. But if you had to pick and in response to an eventful year like this, what would you say were the biggest successes and, of course, biggest disappointments? In particular, when it comes to the EU's foreign policy performance?
1: Yes. So, moving on to foreign policy, it has not been a very good year for the EU, that's for sure. And I don't okay. think we can actually speak of very many successes. We have a new high representative uh, for foreign and security policy, Josep Borrell, who's been quite articulate in uh, sharing with us his views of where European Union foreign policy should go. And I have to say that uh, many of his arguments are very compelling. The high representative often has had his, his hands tied by EU member states that were unwilling to take certain steps. So we've seen that during 2020, Turkey has enhanced quite dramatically its adventurism in the East Mediterranean and that the EU has not managed to Uh, contain that, has not managed to respond to that. And most importantly, they haven't managed to find a common position being quite split uh, between EU member states. Similarly, we could say the same for with respect to uh, Libya, where the EU, again, has been ousted, has an actor in the region and other states, particularly Turkey, Russia, calling the shots uh, in Libya. Uh, which is really Europe's uh, backyard. There was a war in 2020. It was short, but it had victims um, in Nagorno-Karabakh and between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and the EU was a bystander there. So there aren't very many uh, successes at all. Of course, the fact that the US was unsupportive of any European action in any of these theatres did not help. So what, what can we look at, which is under a slightly more positive note. And I would say that despite all this, there is one thing that I'd like to highlight. And that is the fact that despite the economic recession, despite the massive negative impact of the coronavirus on Europe's economy, Europeans did not forget the rest of the world. They are talking about vaccines as a global public good. They are talking about the the World Health Organization as an institution that needs support. In fact, they've stepped up when the U.S. pulled out. Europeans stepped up to compensate financially for the loss of contributions from the U.S. And they have. Despite all the cuts to foreign policy that we have seen during 2020, the European Defence Fund has been cut. The uh, multi-annual financial framework does not offer very much by way of foreign policy or financing foreign policy. Uh, But despite this, in the recovery plan, um, Europeans have foreseen uh, some support, especially for neighbours, um, and are designing plans, you know, debt relief plans. They are pushing debt relief plans in uh, G7, G20, and in the various formats where this ought to be done. And even if it's not a major game changer, Europe has been so far the only block of states that has been doing this. Um, and I think that sends a very powerful message. And now that as of January, there'll be a different US administration there's a real opportunity to do something different. And this really ought to be seen by the EU, which is the most multilateralist actor by definition, by DNA. Europe really should try and invest on this and make it a signature element that, you know, mm-hmm. its policies, even if just talking about health policy, even if we're just talking about uh, debt relief and I'm not, you know, even if we look at it from a minimalist perspective, policy angle but still Europe can be a leader a global leader on this so I think that's the success is simply the fact that the rest of the world was not completely forgotten I wouldn't have taken for granted that the EU would have thought in global terms about health the first weeks of the pandemic in March 2020 EU member states closed their borders unilaterally without any coordination so the first instincts were really nationalist so from then to a european scale and then to a more global scale in terms of thinking in terms of solidarity i think that's that's important and it, it is a choice it is a political choice
0: many thanks and certainly what you highlighted is a bright spot amidst all the pessimism and all the negativity that dominated uh 2020 but very briefly just going back to what you were saying about um, the high representative having his hands tied. This is the messy state of European politics, and it has been the case for a long time. The AES just recently celebrated its 10th birthday. And some of these questions keep popping up. So looking back at this year, that's started with grand announcements, big plans from climate to Europe becoming more geopolitical or becoming more fluent when it comes to the language of power. What one lesson should Brussels, you think that Brussels should take?
1: Good question. (laughs) I hadn't thought of this answer, actually. (laughs) I think, and I guess the coronavirus highlighted this, it has possibly accelerated the degree to which internal policy has external consequences. And this nexus, we've always talked a lot about it, um, certainly in the community of think tankers and analysts about the nexus between internal and external. But it's always been a a bit nebulous, this debate. And the European institutions have been particularly bad at doing this because... They are organized by competences. They have powers on the basis of competences and then institutions to run those uh, competences. And those institutions are divided into, it's a bureaucracy, right? So they're, they're siloed. And I think for the first time, and perhaps the attention given also to the climate crisis imposes the need to think about the internal and the external in a much more interconnected way. And um, yeah, and of course, with the pandemic, when you had, you know, the supply crisis of PPE and paracetamol, and then you realise that actually you're not producing any of it. So all of a sudden, something that is very close to home, you realise it's actually an international problem. It's an international issue. So I think perhaps The lesson learned is for the Commission that it really needs to think a bit more creatively about the relationship between internal and external. And it's doing that. I mean, as I said, this, you know, it's accelerated it. It was it had begun, but there was very little movement. For instance, a couple of years ago, the Commission came up with a communication on the international role for the euro, but it wasn't really pursued. Whereas now they're beginning to think about how to implement that. Um, So things things are changing. Um, In that sense. And I I guess that is the lesson to be learned. The other one is that, so as you, you mentioned, you know, the geopolitical commission, which I've always thought was a bit of a contradiction in terms, the commission being an institution, rules based embedded to the legal system, it can't be geopolitical. Certainly not in the classic sense of geopolitical, which basically is sort of a realist interpretation of international politics, where you have a rather smart and nimble actor who's able to change mm-hmm. the chessboard to its will. And the Commission isn't really that. But where it has a lot more leeway is on economics. So if you think of geopolitical as extended to geoeconomic then you, you, it opens up a whole range of possibilities uh, for the EU to engage with the world um, in a different way and really leveraging on what its strengths
0: are rather than mm-hmm.
1: what its weaknesses are. And its weaknesses are geopolitics, right. not geoeconomics.
0: Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Um, I think the pandemic has made it blindingly obvious, the, the utter collapse between the internal and the external. And the Commission you know, is well advised to pay more attention, not just to the policy side, but to the politics side of things. But building on what you said, and if you were to advise the foreign policy establishment in Brussels and across the continent, the AES, the High representative, where would you advise that the focus of Brussels and beyond Brussels should be regarding next year? Just building on what you enumerated as, as key lessons from last year.
1: Since we've been having these continuous discussions about what Europe's international role ought to be. And I think we always come up with the conclusion that on most theatres, Europe needs to be present, albeit that involvement may vary depending on proximity in the first instance, and obviously interests. So proximity says that Europe cannot fail in its neighbourhood, which is what it has been doing. And with its neighbourhood, I'm afraid I have to include the Balkans, which I would consider part of Europe. But actually, the enlargement process is going so slowly again because of national vetoes that we're not taking seriously uh, the challenges in that region, and we're, we're you know, we're, we're failing the aspirations, desires, and promises actually made to the citizens of the Western Balkans. So. And then so the Western Balkans and neighboring countries really need to take priority. But this cannot be to the detriment of a more global engagement. There's no either or really on this front. But here, perhaps Europe can really make a difference at the multilateral level. And at the same time, I think it needs to connect to global partners in a more meaningful way from Asia to Africa to the Americas. Of course the item which will be number one, number one on the list on the agenda will be China. The US has been imposing on Europe a kind of binary choice either with us or with or against us with respect to China. With Biden the tune will change but the substance will remain the same and it's unavoidable for EU member states to overcome again their differences, the differences among them, and engage with the U.S. on all things China related to China, which it so happens relate to most policy areas anyway, because it ranges from from trade to human rights to security in Asia to investments in Africa. It covers really the full technology, taxation. You know, it covers the full range of issues. So um, that's an unavoidable number one on the list, even if European states might not be willing to, um, to address that.
0: Many thanks. So multilateralism, a more agile global partnering. You certainly talked about Europe continuing to fill the gaps when it comes to the deficit of global solidarity. Yeah. And last but not least, China where we need a more realistic approach towards Beijing that doesn't get dragged back into the Manichaean way uh, that the Trump administration sort of portrayed things. When it comes to foreign policy, I should also add that one of the biggest dilemmas or questions the new commission will face is how it crafts this more unified and more assertive European foreign policy, especially when 2020, in my opinion, Uh, gave us ample uh, room to question whether it is indeed possible to craft such a policy, especially in in relations to cases where the union was called to defend crucial interests of member states, not in the theoretical sense, but in the purely direct uh, sense. And in the eyes of many, in some of these key member states, and some of these you certainly alluded to, Um, the European response was a disappointment. Right, well, we'll leave the doom and gloom 2020 uh, back. I have one last question, which concerns you. Uh, It's been a busy year, and it's been a year that, you know, to a bigger or less extent, uh, has been difficult for everyone. So can you perhaps single out one book or perhaps one movie that sort of acted as a reference point for you, that, that helped you? Uh, make it through the storm that was uh, 2020?
1: Yeah, I have
0: two books.
1: The first book is by Richard Powers. It's a novel. It's called The Overstory. And it's about trees. It's an amazing novel about trees. Um, There's several characters in this novel that somehow some of them cross paths with each other. But the protagonists really are the trees. And I have to say, I was reading that when we went into lockdown. And you you may recall that the first uh, weeks and months of lockdown, there was no cars, there was no traffic, the air was clean, and it was spring, and we could go out for walks. Some of us perhaps couldn't go very far, depending on the rules in the country we were staying. But the trees, the noise they make, the rustling of the leaves, took the center stage also of my mind, and it felt like a vindication of nature the revenge of nature which as human beings we have rejected we have we're part of nature but we've rejected that principle we've tried to conquer nature we've we've embarked on uh, criminal deforestation and the trees and the story about the trees the tree, trees communicating to each other and setting out the strategies for their own survival and it just felt that we had so much to learn from them so that was one that was the novel and then because I became curious about the Spanish flu I I have a degree in history and I couldn't Mm -hmm. really remember reading much about the Spanish flu so I wanted to find out so I went to find some of my history books and I found a a one from 1998 by Mark Madzawa which is called Dark Continent, and it's a history of the 20th century. Right, yeah. And it's thematically, it's a brilliant book, it's thematically organised. And so I realised while I was reading it that many of the debates in which we were taking part future of democracy, future of globalization, health, bodies, how we relate to the, those. The, they were treated in this book. And, you know, you look at the, the failure of representative parliamentary democracy in the 1920s and, and 30s. The debate about capitalism was ran parallel to the debate we were having about globalization. So it was quite, really quite fascinating to be able to take a, a, a slightly, more, put on a, a more historical uh, interpretation, use a more historical interpretation of what was happening to us. So those are the two books that, for me, were really important during this year. Uh, neither of them were published in 2020, although the overstory is quite recent. Uh, Mark Matsuo is a 20-year-old book, but still extremely valid and f- fascinating. Also, he talks about her empire which again with the black lives matter protest uh, back, came back to the fore let's not forget that those of us who've done a historical start history studies in the UK we didn't really do very much on empire actually I did do a bit on empire but you know a lot of the students w- were not they hadn't learned about empire at school so the this um debate uh, that has come out with the you know with the statues being knocked down etc it's absolutely fascinating it's opening up a whole new look into uh, humankind and its history.
0: Many thanks, Rosa. And of course, speaking (coughs) of uh, the UK, uh, we didn't mention the B word, Brexit, and what repercussions it will have for European foreign policy, not just EU foreign policy. But we'll save that uh, for a future episode.
1: Maybe not. Maybe I could just add, recreating a relationship with the UK on foreign policy matters ought to be a priority. For 2021, because the UK and the EU have been partners on foreign and security matters for decades now. And during 2020, it was clear that the UK, the government, did not want to be seen as cooperating with the EU on various issues, sanctions, human rights, uh disinformation, but it has to. So that's a priority for 2021, I would say.
0: Many thanks, Rosa, for these um two recommendations. Um where looking forward to discovering these books and i'm sure our listeners um, will follow your recommendations many also and uh, many thanks also for um, highlighting um, the fact that in 2020 many of us discovered or rediscovered at least the practical benefits of a more peripatetic, way of thinking and theorizing about things. I'm afraid our time is up. So all there is for me to say is a big thanks to Rosa Balfour for joining us. Rosa, many thanks indeed.
1: Thank you. Happy 2021.
0: This was FEP's Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. You can find the series on all podcast platforms and make sure you subscribe. As I always do, I will leave you with a quote. And this episode's quote is again by Albert Camus which might come in handy when we try to shore up some optimism when we look forward to 2021. In the midst of winter, I found there was within me an invincible summer. Merry Christmas to all. Many thanks for listening. Have an excellent afternoon.
1: Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag Bex talks More is yet to come. Stay tuned.